Genesis 3, looking at verses 7 through 13 this morning, the day man, excuse me, man died. So last time we were together, we asked the question, what about Adam? Why did the serpent target Eve? What was Adam doing in that time? We know from the end of verse 6 that Adam eats of the fruit after Eve does. We know that in order for Satan to get what he really wanted from the whole situation, he was going to need to get Adam involved, not necessarily just Eve involved, because Adam was the head of the woman. He was the head of creation. And the delegated, uh, the delegated, um, he had delegated dominion over the created order. And, of course, this is what Satan wanted. He wanted the created order. He wanted the kingdom. Uh, he wanted a kingdom, and the created order would be his kingdom. So Eve couldn't give this to Satan. Adam could. Therefore, Satan is going to target Adam. And we talked about the nature of men and women. We talked about the propensity of Satan to hit us where we are weakest, the nature of emotions, the design of God for men and women, all of those various aspects to kind of contemplate the possible doctrinal reasons why it might be that Satan went about things the way he did, um, recognizing at the end, and we'll talk about this more in the weeks to come, uh, that Adam, however, having headship means that it was his choice and that uh, the, the buck stopped with him, as it were. So verse 6 told us that men and women, man and woman, both ate of the fruit of the tree. The fruit which is the point of the controversy between God's claim and Satan's claims. Recall, this is that point of controversy. The fruit... Uh, that God said, ye shall surely die if you eat thereof. And Satan said, ye shall not surely die. That's the controversy. That's the great di uh, diversion or the great contrast or contradiction in claims. Uh, we, we can talk about all the other elements of what Satan said and of what God said. But God said, the day that you eat of that fruit, you shall surely die. And Satan, when uh, Eve recount re recounted this to him, said, ye shall not surely die. So which is it? And that's what we're going to talk about today. So we'll go back and grab context in verse 6 as we continue today. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 and 7 say this. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. So here in verse 7, we read the results of this decision. And perhaps at this point, the, the first-time reader of Genesis would be a little bit confused. Uh, here we have a God who promises that man and woman would die if they eat. And we have an adversary who says that God is a liar and that, in fact, the eyes of man and woman would be opened if they eat, knowing thus good and evil. And from all appearances, the serpent, the adversary, is the one that was correct here. When Adam and Eve partook of this fruit, they did not fall over, kill over dead. And then the scriptures tell us that their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they were ashamed and they covered themselves. Pastor, doesn't this mean Satan was vindicated? Well, from first glance, yes. But in reality, no. Instead, what it does is it helps us orient ourselves to the nature of how revelation works. We have a decision to make when we step into this passage. Is God right or is, not, is God not right? 
Is God a liar or is God not a liar? And we have the rest of Revelation to help us understand that this God who created all things, who created Adam and Eve, was not lying to them because he is not a liar, because God is truth. Therefore, in him is no lie. If, if there is a lie in God, then God is not God. In him is only truth. And so, if we approach the scriptures in that way, we come to one conclusion about what we're reading here. If we approach the scriptures in a significantly more pragmatic way, and we say, well, the scriptures are potentially flawed, our God is potentially flawed, well, then sure, God failed, God lied, God manipulated, God cajoled, Satan called him on it, Satan wins out. But that's only if we wrap the Bible around our definition of what death means, wrap the Bible around our definition of what it means that their eyes were opened, what it means that they understood good and evil. But if we allow this text to be definitional, and what I mean by that is that we allow this text to set, it, to set for us the definition of death and the definition of the, the, the concept of, of, of eyes being opened and knowing good and evil, of illumination, then we go from questioning whether or not God is true Questioning whether or not Satan was vindicated here to saying, no, Satan cannot be vindicated. Therefore, this text does not tell us that God failed. This text rather tells us that there's a different definition of death than the one that may be rattling around in my, in my head. We as Christians understand that the Bible is a book that has its own language. We've talked about this several times in this series already. We've talked about the Bible's definition of marriage versus the world's definition of marriage. They're different, right? And if I seek to impose the world's definition of marriage on the term marriage in the Bible, then I'm going to misunderstand what the Bible's saying. We've talked about the world's definition of love versus the Bible's definition of love. They're different. And if I take the world's definition of love and I impose it upon the Bible, then I'm not going to understand what the Bible is saying about love. The world's definition of forgiveness is different than the Bible's definition of forgiveness. And if I take the world's definition of forgiveness and I impose it upon the Bible, then I'm going to misunderstand what the Bible has to say about forgiveness. And we do this all the time. It's not because we intend to do it. It's simply because we live in the context of our world, of our definitions. And so when I'm reading the Bible, if I'm not careful, I'm going to impose upon the text what I think it's saying, rather than allowing the text to speak for itself. And the Bible is a book that's written so well and written so completely that the Bible is able to speak for itself. Which means if I want to understand the definition of love, I don't need to go to a dictionary and then impose that dictionary definition on the Bible. I go to the Bible and I find out what the Bible says about love and I impose that definition or I draw that definition out of the Bible and that's the definition I use. If I want to understand what the Bible says about forgiveness, I don't go to a dictionary read the word forgiveness, find out what the, how it's defined, and then impose that definition on the Bible. I read the Bible and allow the Bible to define forgiveness for itself because God is giving us his definitions, his descriptions. God is giving us what we need in the text itself. And so we've talked about this in various ways. And today we learn this. We learn that the word death in the Bible is not the same as death as we characteristically think about it. It is not limited to what the world around us would consider death. 
Because at the moment that Adam and Eve transgressed and ate of the fruit, we know that God's promise didn't fail. We know that what God said would come to pass came to pass. Because if God's promise had failed, if God had lied, then Satan would have won right then and there. And the remainder of the book would not have been written because this book is the book of the revelation of God. It would not have been continued to be written if God had failed in chapter 3. But the remainder of the book was written. Because only if we limit God to a very narrow definition of death did Adam and Eve not die on that day. But if instead we believe that God's promise of death was true, and that in the day that Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they did in fact die, well, then we're able to form our definition of what death is biblically from the outcome of their transgression. And this is important, particularly as we step into the New Testament. Because death and life is one of those broad themes in the New Testament. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And we see all of these, these promises as it relates to death and life. And if we impose the dictionary definition on those, we're going to be missing out on what the Bible's saying. Instead, if we want to understand what the Bible means when it speaks of death, we come back to Genesis chapter 3 and we allow Genesis chapter 3 to be our definition, our definitional statement of what death is. A definition which, again, not only helps us understand this passage, but will form the foundation of the Bible's teaching on the death that the human race was ushered into from this point, from the Genesis chapter 3 on to today. So we draw the definition of death out of the Bible. We do not impose a definition of death upon the Bible. And today's message thus becomes definitional. We're going to let the Bible speak for itself and define for us what it means when it says death. And in verse 7, the Bible tells us that at the moment Adam and Eve ate of that fruit, things happened. And as we look at the things that happened on that day, that is, going to, that is going to teach us what the Bible means when it speaks of death. So the Bible tells us, they ate of the fruit and their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked. Now, initially we say, yes, Satan said that their eyes would be opened to know good and evil. And here the text says their eyes were opened. So we see that parallel. Satan says your eyes would be opened to know good and evil. And then the text says their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked. But here's the thing. Remember in chapter 2 when we talked about man and woman being naked and the Bible says that they were naked and they were not ashamed. And we spoke about why it was that they were naked and they were not ashamed. And the first thing that we talked about was the sanctity of the marriage bed, right? The Hebrews telling us that marriage is honorable in all things and the bed undefiled. And so we, we recognized that there was a purity in the sanctity of the fact that they were married and so that they could be naked and not ashamed. But we also talked about the reality that they, as the children of God, lived in the liberty of divine fellowship and purity, 
the blessed liberty of the children of God, and that to the pure all things are pure, the Bible says. Right? But to the undefiled, the wicked and undefiled is nothing pure. And so we talked about the fact that, there, it, that they lived not just in the context of the marriage bed, but that they also lived within the context of purity. And this purity is recognized in the fact that to the pure, all things are pure. That they lived in the purity of being clothed in Christ's righteousness. Adam and Eve already had a fundamental understanding of good and evil. We know this as well, don't we? Now, they did not know all of the ins and outs of what the Bible will teach us, perhaps, because things were fairly new. But here's the thing. Good and evil. We talked about it a little bit Sunday night about in Hebrews, right? When we think of good and evil, we typically wrap good and evil around some moral standard. Do's and don't do's. Say and don't say, wear and don't wear, watch and don't watch. But what we learned on Sunday night is whatsoever is not a faith is sin. So that a person can, in fact, be doing a morally good thing, but still be displeasing God if they're doing it outside of faith. So if a person is coming to church, but he's coming to church in order that he may judge, stand atop others, um, had his own ego. Church is not a morally bad thing, but he's outside of faith, therefore it's certainly not pleasing God that he's proud and that he's selfish and narcissistic and and judgmental. So what's fascinating about this is Satan said, God knows that in the day that you eat thereof, you shall be as God's knowing good and evil. But what happened just before Satan contradicted God? Satan asked, can you not eat of, the, of every tree in the garden? And she said, no. Eve said, we may eat freely of any tree of the garden except one. And that tree, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we shall not surely eat for the day that we touch it or the day that we eat it, we shall surely die. Eve did know good and evil. Those first verses in Genesis 3 tell us that Eve did, in fact, understand good and evil. She proved it. She knew what was evil. And what was evil was to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was wrong. That was uh, unallowable. It was the single and only prohibition that God had given to them. Everything else that they were doing... The fact that they were eating of the other trees of the garden, that they had named the animals, that, 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 that Adam was tending the garden, uh, that they were naked and not ashamed. All of these things were clothed in the purity of God. There was no evil in them. The only evil was to rebel against God. And to rebel against God, there was one prohibition. Do not eat of this fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So the idea that Satan says you shall be as gods knowing good and evil is in, in, and, of its fact, uh, in and of itself a, a misrepresentation. Adam and Eve were told by God what was good and evil. What Satan was trying to compel them to be able to do or promising them was that they would that they would be moved into a context where they could decide for themselves what was good and evil. 
which means moving from reality, where God defines what is good and evil, to make-believe, where we pretend as though we have the right to do that for ourselves. So then if their nakedness was not fundamentally evil in and of itself, we talked about why, marriage bed undefiled, they lived in the purity and liberty of the fellowship of God, then it isn't necessarily the case that when their eyes were opened, that they were opened to right and wrong. So why did they feel the way they felt when they ate of the fruit? What happened here? What happened was not that when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that they, that they gained something. They did not add something to, to their, their character or to their uh, intellect or to their knowledge that they did not have before. What happened is not that they gained some insight or some knowledge that they had lacked previously. Much to the contrary, they lost something. They lost something that they had before. And as I mentioned, they had two things which allowed them to be naked and not ashamed. First was the marriage bed, which is undefiled. And second was the purity and the liberty of the children of God, fellowship with God. Now, after they ate of the fruit, they were ashamed. Now they were naked and ashamed rather than naked and not ashamed. What changed? Well, they didn't stop being married, so that wasn't it. Well, there's only one other context within which, by which they were naked and not ashamed. They lost one of those two attributes of their existence, and it wasn't that they lost their marriage, which means what they lost on that day was the purity and the liberty of the fellowship of God. They stepped outside of the fellowship with God. They stepped outside of the purity. To the pure, all things are pure. They lost their purity. They lost their virtue. They lost their, we often use the word innocence. They stepped outside of fellowship with God. They were separated from the purity and the liberty of fellowship with God and in, the, in, the, in that, this is the thing that happened when they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge and good and evil. What that tells us then is that whatever it was that happened there, that is death. Because God didn't lie, which means they died. That is death. And that is our running definition of death now. It has to be. Because God is not a liar. The Bible has defined death for us. And this is death. We'll talk more about that in, in, in a minute. So they step into the shame of sin. The shame of their nakedness was the first manifestation of the shame of their sin. They've fallen out of purity into shame. So what happened on that day? Their eyes were opened and they saw that they were naked. Were their eyes open to good and evil? No, God had already told them good and evil. Their eyes were opened. But what happened was they fell out of fellowship. They were opened up to a new context of life. But that new context of life was not progress, it was regress. It was not better, it was worse. It was not a step forward, it was a step backward. They stepped 
They stepped out of fellowship with God and into shame and into fear. And those are the two things that we are going to see are the direct result of this death. Verse 8. They heard the voice of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So Adam and Eve hear the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. God had come to walk with Adam and Eve. He had come to fellowship with the crown of his creation. He had come to have fellowship with man. This is what God has always wanted. God has wanted fellowship. We talked about that early in Genesis. This is what God wants. He wants fellowship with his creation. It is why he made us in the image of himself, so that we could fellowship with him, so that we could commune with him. This is why God had created them. But when they heard the voice of the Lord God, they did something that they had never done before. They hid themselves from God's presence among the trees in the garden. Man hid his face from God. We've all seen this before. You've experienced this before. Any parent has seen this. The child who does something that they know they oughtn't to do. And you go find them huddled in a corner somewhere eating the candy, hiding their face from their parents. It's where that idea comes from. It's too quiet. Where are my children, right? Why is it so quiet? It's not supposed to be that quiet. It's not normally that quiet. If it's that quiet, usually it means my children are doing something that they know they oughtn't to do or they have done something that they know they should not have done. Therefore, they are hiding their face from mom and dad because they have stepped out of fellowship with mom and dad. They are not in right fellowship, so they hide themselves. But we've experienced this in our own lives as it relates to God too, haven't we? You sin. And the reality of that sin settles upon your heart through conviction. And you feel conviction, a feeling of alienation, a feeling of separation. And you want to run and hide from the face of God, whom you love, but you've offended him, and so you hide from him. I get this very often when I'm talking to people at the jail. I've told you this before. A lot of times with people who have relapsed, they say, well, I was doing really well, and then, and then they start to go through why they relapsed. And one of those things is, well, I was doing really well, and then something happened, and then I was stressed, and then I started to use, and then because I started to use, I stopped going to church because I didn't want to be in church in that state. And this is not uncommon, that when a person puts himself into a position of, of wrong, and he feels that distance and that alienation, he hides himself. He stops going to church. He separates himself from God's people. He stops reading the Bible. He doesn't pray anymore. At the time where he needs God the most, he runs from God. He hides from God. This is common. This is human. It goes all the way back to the very first sin with Adam and Eve. What did they do when they sinned against God? They ran and they hid themselves from the face of God. Why? Because you feel a separation. And many people interpret this separation to be God is angry with me. But the funny thing is, is that it's not God that's separated from us. It's us that's hiding ourselves from God. Did God still walk in the cool of the day in the garden seeking Adam and Eve after they had alienated themselves from him? Yes, they hid themselves from God. And that's a wonderful picture of Jesus Christ himself. 
mankind who has separated himself from God and alienated himself from God and God who then sends his only begotten son to reconcile man unto himself. This is the theme of death and life. Death is being defined for us. Don't miss it. Because this, this definition of death is the one that you need to carry into Matthew. This definition of death is the one you carry into John. This definition of death is the one you carry into Romans. This is death. And this is what we see here. Now again, the human mind does not naturally interpret this into death. Because for us, the death, the death is when our bodies fail. But if we allow the Bible to be the standard by which we understand this word, then this is how the Bible defines death. Death is a separation. And even more so, the first death in the Bible is not a separation of the body from the spirit. That would be when our bodies fail. But this death, the first death that we find in the Bible, is the separation of man's spirit from God's spirit. A separation of fellowship between God and man. And this informs and prioritizes our understanding. That in fact, this world, the physical attributes, the physical bodies, the temporal experiences, this world is not the end-all, be-all of life, but much to the contrary. What we see here, and can in fact see throughout the Bible, is that our physical lives, and even our, our, the death that we experience in, the, in our bodies, is just a temporary window into the spiritual life that we're intended to have. And the threat of death that we can experience in the spiritual. In a very real way, this physical life is a metaphor for something much deeper and much more real in the spiritual. That every single time we, we witness someone die, and we go to that funeral, or we read that obituary, or we partake in that memorial, or we remember them on the day of their passing, or whatever it might be, this is intended to be a reminder, a material and a temporal reminder of something far deeper, far more permanent, of the eternal. The reality of an eternal death. The reality of eternal life. This is why Jesus so often used these parables, these metaphors. I am the vine, you are the branches. Because this earth and the things that are on this earth are metaphors for much deeper spiritual truths. It's why God built things to happen the way they happen, to teach us things. It's why we have a family. It's why we have fathers and mothers. We talked about that, that in our marriage series. The husband, the wife, the father and mother. God established these institutions in order to teach us of himself. The physical is meant to be a metaphor of the deeper, more real spiritual truths that undergird them. Man's physical existence in a very real way is more or less a metaphor for our true and eventual eternal existence in the spiritual. And so we take the Bible at its word and we understand that on this day, Adam and Eve did in fact die. And we see the fruit of this death in the fact that they hid their faces from God. Satan promised them freedom, but his definition of freedom was a fraud. It was a lie. It's a type of freedom. Make no mistake. They step into a type of freedom, but not real freedom. A veneer of freedom. 
a false freedom, a pseudo freedom, very similar to the kind of freedom that our society is living in today. Our society has clung on to this word freedom or liberty. And they have taken this word and they have twisted it and perverted it to be the, the essence of it being absolute will to do whatever I want without any responsibility or accountability. But that's not freedom. That's not real freedom. That's pseudo freedom. It's the kind of freedom that actually leads to deeper bondage. It's a satanic philosophy, which today we know as humanism, a so-called freedom that actually is slavery by another name. Now, I very rarely quote anything other than the Bible in my sermons. It's not often that I bring something other than the Bible into one of my sermons. But today I want to give you a quote. It's one I've never used before. I've used a couple a couple of times. It's a quote from Fedor Dostoevsky's book, Brother Karamazov. It's his final book that he wrote, his final work. Covers many themes. One of the themes that cropped up was the warped idea of liberty that was beginning to find its way into the 19th century. And I want to read you a passage from this book, from chapter 3, where uh, there's a, a, a priest speaking. And he says this. He says, look at the worldly and all who set themselves up above the people of God. Has not God's image and his truth been distorted in them? They have science, but in science there is nothing but what is the object of sense. The spiritual world, the higher part of man's being is rejected altogether, dismissed with a sort of triumph, even with hatred. The world has proclaimed the reign of freedom, especially of late. But what do we see in this freedom of theirs? Nothing but slavery and self-destruction. For the world says, you have desires, and so satisfy them. For you have the same rights as the most rich and powerful. Don't be afraid of satisfying them and even multiplying your desires. That is the modern doctrine of the world, in that they see freedom. And what follows from this right of multiplication of desires? That's what Satan talked about in the garden, right? Your desires, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. This is what Satan was promising. Freedom through indulging your desires. What follows from this right of multiplication of desires? For the rich, isolation and spiritual suicide. In the poor, envy and murder. For they have been given rights but have not been shown the means to satisfy their wants. They maintain that the world is getting more and more united, more and more bound together in brotherly community as it overcomes distance and sets thoughts flying through the air. Alas, put no faith in such a bond or union. Interpreting freedom as the multiplication and rapid satisfaction of desires, men distort their own nature, for many senseless and foolish desires and habits and ridiculous fancies are fostered in them. They live only for mutual envy, for luxury and ostentation, to have dinners, visits, carriages, rank, and slaves to wait on. One is looked upon as a necessity for which life, honor, and human feeling are sacrificed, and men even commit suicide if they are unable to satisfy it. We see the same thing among those who are not rich, while the poor drown their unsatisfied need and their envy and drunkenness. 
but soon they will drink blood instead of wine. They are being led on to it. I ask you, is such a man free? This is the idea that freedom, of freedom that Satan proposed on that day. He didn't call it that. In the same way that the billboard for alcohol or for gambling or for vice doesn't talk about the slavery. It only talks about the desires. It's a lie. The world will tell us if you step into sin, you will not die. And if we define death the way the world defines death, it is probably correct. Christian, if you choose to follow the way of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, you probably will not bodily die quickly. Depends on the sin. Most likely, you will live to see another day. You may go on to live a long human life. But at what expense? At the expense of actual life. See, it isn't the whole story, is it? You'll have your mortality, but you will fall short in the biblical sense of everything that is life. Jesus said in John 10, verse 10, The thief cometh but for to steal, cometh not, excuse me, but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Certainly Jesus came to give men eternal life, but not just eternal life in the sense of when you, when you die in body, you will live forever in spirit. Jesus came to restore to man that which Adam and Eve lost the moment that they partook in the fruit of the tree. They died on that day, though they were living, they were yet dead, and Jesus came to make them alive again. Adam and Eve's existence continued, but they died because their spirits were fundamentally separated from communion with their creator. Their spirits died. Their life in God Ended. Their pursuit of freedom produced slavery and spiritual suicide. They, they spiritually killed themselves in order that they might pursue their lusts and desires. That's what happened on that day. They ate of the fruit. The freedom and purity that they lived in, that they were clothed in, was covered instead in shame. And they heard the voice of their creator they covered their shame and then they hid themselves from the voice of their creator in shame. They were afraid and they felt shame. That was the fruit of the fruit. <laughs> the fruit of their choice. And so we see the final and immediate result in verses 9 through 13. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldst not eat? Adam and Eve hide themselves. God calls to Adam, where, asking where he is. Adam reveals himself to the Lord. He says that when he heard the voice of God, he was afraid because he was naked. No longer naked and unashamed. He was naked. He was ashamed. He felt fear. He hid himself. Afraid of his very creator. A condition that God never designed us to be in. That God never wanted for us. God does not want us to be ashamed and afraid. God does not want us hiding ourselves from him. This is not how God designed our relationship with him to be. This is what sin has done. Much to the contrary, 
1 John chapter 4, verse 18 tells us, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. We were clothed in love, in purity, in righteousness until that day. And then on that day, Adam and Eve chose themselves above God. They chose themselves. They chose their desires and their desires and the multiplication of their desires brought them into destruction and death. Shame, alienation, fear. Welcome to the freedom of sin. Sure, it will bring all that is in the world. It will bring the lust of the flesh for a time. It will bring the lust of the eyes for a time. It will bring the pride of life for a time. All of those will be at your doorstep for a time, but the end thereof is death. It will inevitably come with slavery and spiritual suicide. The bondage of shame, the sorrow of alienation, the weight of fear. And God confronts Adam on this, and Adam says in verse 12, the man said, the woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. Now, characteristically, we interpret this as a blame shift uh, of Adam blaming his wife for having eaten. And this is entirely possible, but it isn't actually demanded here. Nothing that Adam said is actually wrong. God said, did you eat of the fruit? And the man said, the woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. That's true. Now, is he seeking to blame Eve here? Possibly. We might say probably, but not definitively. It's true that this is not the response we would have liked to have seen from Adam. Much better one may have been kind of a Psalm 51 against thee and thee only have I sinned type idea. Humility, we don't necessarily see the natural humility that we would desire. Therefore, we assume because of that, that perhaps Adam is shifting the blame. And that's very possible. But it is also possible that Adam is simply recounting what happened. There was a woman you gave to me and she gave me of the tree and I ate it. And so God then turns to the woman. He confronts the woman in verse 13. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And again, be nice to see a little bit more humility here. We might assume that if, if, uh, if this was not blame shifting, we might see a little more humility. However, once again, nothing that Eve said here was false. The serpent did beguile her, did trick her, did deceive her, and she ate. And the text continues with God then speaking, first to the serpent, then back to the woman, and then to the man again. And we're going to pursue that next week. We're not going to talk about that this week. For today, however, we have this other topic at hand. Today we are learning, it's a definitional message, where we are establishing what the Bible means by death. And this is the definition of death that carries through the whole of the Bible, separation, so that when a person physically dies, it's the separation of their spirit from their body, a person spiritually death is a separation of their spirit from God's spirit or from the life that is in God. And this is death. This is what we want to carry into the Bible. As we hear doctrinal teaching on the concept of death, don't just think of that person lying in the grave. Think of what happened to Adam and Eve on that day. Think of a person who is still very much, their heart is still very much beating Their blood is still very much pumping, but they are living in shame, 
in fear, in alienation from God, that they are hid from God, that they have hid themselves from God, that they have committed spiritual suicide, or that they are living in that spiritual death, that spiritual alienation, that false, that pseudo-freedom that has bound them to shame and to fear, to guilt, to confusion, has bound them to these lusts, that is just as much death as any person lying in a casket. And then we step into John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And we read this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. This makes sense. If death is separation from God, in the one who has created us is life. When I step outside of my creator, outside of fellowship, I have stepped outside of life. What is outside of life but death? Consider the implication of this text in light of Genesis 3. In the beginning was the word, in him was life. When man is separated from this life that puts this man into death. The moment man ate of that fruit, he was separated from his creator in whom is life. And this life is the light of men. So man fell into darkness. Man fell into death. And then we read John 3 in light of this. Verses 16 through 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. And this is the condemnation. What is the condemnation? That light is come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light. And remember, the life was the light of men. To hate the light is to live in death. Neither cometh to the light lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light that his deeds may be manifest that they are wrought in God. One who is living in truth is not ashamed. One who is living in truth is not afraid. One who is living in truth is not living in guilt because he has come to the light that his deeds may be manifest that they are wrought in God. Because to the pure, all things are pure. But to the wicked and undefiled, all things are unpure. That's what Adam and Eve lost on that day. They were naked and not ashamed because they were living in the context of the marriage bed, and in the purity of the blessed liberty of the children of God. And then they followed their desires to, their, to its, its natural end, which is destruction and death. And they lost that purity. They lost that innocence. Christ invites us to a very different freedom than the freedom of sin. A life of sin is a freedom of sorts, a freedom defined ironically by slavery and self-destruction. And the end of these things is death. But Christ invites us into the glorious liberty of the children of God, defined by life, defined by purity, and the end of these things being life eternal. And so we read in Romans chapter 5, verses 15 through 19. 
But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, separated from God, alienated from the life of God, alienated from the light in darkness and death, much more by the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many, and not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, they died on that day. Death reigned on that day. Much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by one the offenses, the offense of one, excuse me, therefore, as by the offense of one, there we go, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. We'll talk significantly more about this in the weeks to come as we talk uh, about headship and the nature of headship. But this is the life and the death that we see here. That Adam ushered into humanity death. And so we are all born into death. We are all born separated from God. And then God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to purchase for us the means by which to regain life. Are you among those who can confidently say that you have been made righteous by accepting the free gift of salvation through belief in the name of Jesus Christ to be saved? Is that you? Have you confessed the reality of your sinful state? Acknowledge that you are separated from God. Acknowledge that though you are very much alive in body, that you are dead in spirit, that you have been separated from God and that you cannot in any way, shape or form earn or work your way back into fellowship with God, but that you need Jesus Christ to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. Have you confessed to the Lord Jesus, acknowledged that Jesus' death on the cross alone can pay for your sins? Have you believed that God has raised Jesus up from the dead and forgiven you as he forgives all who will come unto him? Have you been saved? But of course, as we've seen already, the life that Jesus provides is not just about being saved unto the life that is to come. It's a life now. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. A reunion into fellowship with God. That is what accepting Jesus Christ as our Savior brings us into. Alienated since Adam. Reunited by Christ. So when Jesus says, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing, John 15. What is he saying there? Our life is intended to be a life lived as an extension of that which Jesus Christ has done for us. We live in his life. Are you experiencing the joy of that fellowship, Christian? Or have you through sin, though born again unto everlasting life, chosen to live in a manner which grieves or quenches the Holy Spirit of God so that you aren't experiencing the realities and the promises of the Spirit of God. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Those are the nine given in Galatians 5. Are you abiding in Christ or are you living 
though you have eternal life, yet alienated, quenching the Spirit of God, and so not really fully invested in the life that was purchased for you? Are you still living in that context of fear and of shame and of alienation, hiding yourself from God, not getting into His Word, not spending time in prayer, not being among God's people, alienated from the life of God, or are you living in that life? Are you placing barriers of separation between you and the life that is in Jesus Christ through sin? Or are you living, having confessed your sin, in the purity and the righteousness of Christ? Pastor, how can I know? Well, Genesis is a good start. Are you experiencing shame, guilt, alienation, fear? Is that a common part of your daily existence? Shame, guilt, alienation, fear. These are not natural to the Christian doesn't mean they don't come because we're all human. doesn't mean you're not going to have bad days, tough times. But if that is the context within which you're living life, there is something wrong, Christian. I'm not trying to cause you to question your salvation here, nor am I trying to say you aren't in Christ. But if you aren't experiencing that which the Bible says is the fruit of a relationship with Christ, there is certainly something wrong. Let's find out what that is. Let's get it taken care of so that you can live in the fullness of Christ. So we go through the process. We search our hearts for for known or unknown sin. In the vein of Psalm 139, 23 and 24, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. God is not in the business of hiding himself from us. If you seek me, ye shall find me if you search with all your heart, he says. He's not hiding himself from us. We hide ourselves from him. God is not in the business of not telling us when there's something between him and us. If we're searching our hearts to know whether or not there's sin in our hearts, he's not going to allow us to flounder in darkness if our hearts are willing to to search. I confess any revealed sin and trust that God has forgiven according to his promise in 1 John 1 verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That means when we confess it, when we acknowledge it, when we, when we lay it before him and we say, I, 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 my, my sin is before me, I am wrong, you are right, and justify God in the midst of our own sinful choices, he, can, he, he forgives us. And then we get up and we move on. And then I abide in Christ. I put on the old man and I put on the new man. Sanctified through the time in God's word and through prayer, I humble myself before the truth of God's word and watch as the fruit of the Spirit begins to bear itself in me. And then comes the love. And then comes the joy. And then comes the peace. You don't have to conjure it up in your life, Christian. It will be there as you're abiding. Are you abiding? Pastor, you make it sound so easy well, then I guess I did something wrong because it's not easy. It's simple. It's actually not very hard to grasp the process, but it's not easy to live in. Why? Well, because we're human, which means we're selfish, which means we uh, are proud, which means we um, are easily distracted. All of those things are going to contend against our peace. All of those things are going to contend against our joy because we're going to see that shiny object and we're going to follow the shiny object object and take our eyes off of Christ. Because we're going to get selfish one day and that's going to put us into a hole. And everything is about us and everything is about us being offended or us not having what we want. We're going to become envious or jealous or, um, or unforgiving and so bitter or resentful. 
And all of that will absolutely, every single time, strip you of your joy, strip you of your peace, strip you of your contentment. It will bring you into fear. It will bring you into shame. It will bring you into all of the, the natural outworkings of the flesh, alienation and guilt. Until we humble ourselves, because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble, we realign ourselves and then we find God again. He wasn't missing. We were missing. We come back to him again and he forgives us, cleanses us. We get up, we move on, and then the fruit of the Spirit can begin to flow again. Or grow, as the case may be. There's our analogy. The process itself is easy in that God does the work in the hearts of those who submit but submission isn't always easy, is it? Because all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, these are powerful, these are alluring, they are calling us away. They are calling us to the pseudo-freedom, the false freedom, the freedom that leads to bondage, the freedom that leads to self-destruction. And they make all of the wonderful promises of the fulfillment of your desires, but they leave you ragged and empty and fearful, and shameful. But though it's not easy to follow this path, because this path is fraught with all of these allures, it's absolutely worth fighting for. Because the end of that road is life more abundantly. The day that Adam and Eve ate of that fruit, they died. They did not gain on that day. They did not progress to a new avenue, a new element of illumination. They died. What happened after they ate of the fruit? They fell into fear and they fell into shame. Destruction. That's what happened. Their bodies persisted. But they experienced a separation from God and all of the slavery and self-destruction that comes with it. And it comes with it every time, Christian. Don't listen to the lies. Don't believe it. Every time, that is where sin takes you. Satan lied. Eve was deceived. Adam rebelled. Man fell to sin. But thank God we've been told the end of the story. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not live in that death but have everlasting life. And not only has he told the end of the story, but we have the ability through Christ to live in that victory and the grace that God has promised as the solution to man's sin problem. Are you living in that victory? First, have you accepted that victory by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ? If you're not a believer, if you've never accepted that gift, let's, let's make today the day. Christian, are you living in the victory that you have entered into? Or have you been drawn back into the deceits of sin, into slavery and self-destruction, to the, the, the pseudo-freedom that sin says it offers that does the same thing every time? It brings fear, alienation, shame, and guilt. If we have the humility to receive it, God has paved the way. May we walk in that way. May we abide in Christ. Live in that life more abundantly. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. 
More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.